I'm Heather Aykroyd. And Dan Harvey. And we work together as Aykroyd and Harvey, and we are visual artists. When you use the term art, what does it mean for you? You know, I think in a way now it's become a way of life, really. You know, it's as a way of people getting a handle on what we do. We'll say we're artists. But then that sort of leads, sometimes it'll be the question, oh, do you paint? Or depending on who you're having the conversation with or people by and large now say, what kind of art do you do? And then it gets, and usually at this point, we sort of bring out some postcards that we have lurking mm-hmm. in, our, in, our, in our bags because, you know, working with visual medium, as we do by and large, it just seems easier to say, OK, this is this is an example of what we do. And then that allows people to sort of uh, go, oh, oh, right, OK. And then they can start to ask questions. I think because our work doesn't sort of naturally fall into uh, a sort of uh, some, you know, it's, it's not painting, it, it's not sculpture as such. It, it has its own sort of life energy. So it's often quite difficult to explain what it is we do, but it is definitely very much a visual language. Well, you've managed to explain to me after about 24 years, isn't it, Nadan? <laughs> One of the things that uh, that I read in, in what Lucy sent me about what you did was that you talked about energising the creative response to climate change. What, what, what does a creative response to climate change look like and, and why do we need one? I don't think there's one singular way that we respond to it. I think going back to the point that Dan and I first met back in 1990, the medium of our introduction was actually chlorophyll. It was working with seedling grass, using seedling grass, sort of grown in a clay base, grown vertically over existing architectural structure. That was our kind of point of connection. We, we were sort of talking about processes of growth, processes of, of, of change, processes of transformation. And in a way, whenever you are dealing with processes of growth, you have to also embrace the inevitability of, of, of decay or of degradation as well. So we've always been interested in these um, pivotal points. And I think... Around 1988, I was really very keenly aware of all of the conversation around um, the greenhouse effect, you know, following on from the very pivotal speech by James E. Hansen about saying, look, guys, you know, we kind of think that we've got a problem here. Hello, Houston, we've got a problem. And, you know, we're pretty sure what's going on is we're unleashing far too much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And this is causing this phenomena at the time which is called the greenhouse effect. This really caught my imagination. But I think it was a number of years before Dan and I, I suppose, maybe started to actually... I mean, okay, put it this way, Rob. We would never actually say, this is climate change art. That doesn't sit comfortably with us at all. We don't like that kind of quite bold um, categorization of what we do. I think as artists, you, you work with things that interest you and intrigue you and sometimes maybe things that you don't understand as well. I think it, it comes into it. But I think with one of the materials, I mean, working with the seedling grass the way we do and talking about chlorophyll and photosynthesis and in some ways it, it is... It is that the photosynthesis that has actually changed the climate that we, mm. and in created a climate that we can actually survive in. So it's quite interesting. I think that's the way that our work sort of started to move into, into looking at the, the environment yeah. that we exist within. Can you tell us a bit about some of your work, about some of your, some of your projects in yeah. this kind of area? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think there's, um, I mean, one aspect just to pick up on what Dan was saying about the chlorophyll is that we make these very sort of complex biochemical photographs working with chlorophyll um, as a light sensitive pigment. Um, so we can make these incredibly complex images that are grown on the vertical, will often make the space into a dark room. The images are taken by ourselves, we'll project um, up onto a wall of growing grass, and then within about eight days, eight to ten days, we have an incredibly detailed and very um, very exquisite um, positive image. So I think, the, as the Dan only, was saying... The only lights that those pieces receive are from a projected negative onto them. So, so where this, the light falls, it produces the chlorophyll and goes dark green. Where there's less light, it goes less green. Where there's no light, they grow, but they stay yellow. So these are pieces of work that we've been doing for many, many, you know, for many years, really. I mean, for about 24 years. Mm. Um, specifically, a very um, a project that we initiated in 2007, which we call Boyce's Acorns. Um, there was a very famous artist of the 21st century. Uh, sorry, he died in uh, 1986. Joseph Boyce, German artist. I mean, he had an incredible, I mean, worldwide fame. But he would, he he became very articulate and very passionate about ecology, about the environment, about uh, nature. I mean, he was an early, um, he actually was one of the founder members of the German Green Party. I mean, I think he got out of politics when he realized how toxic it was on some levels. But he could bring his fame and he could bring a lot of leverage to, to subjects. Um, and in fact, if you look at the way that Germany is now in terms of renewable energy, in terms of how, you know, it manages um, energy, it's sort of managing the whole de debate around climate change. You know, it's sort of, it really is kind of far in advance of where we are, where we seem to be at times almost medieval. Now we want to go into fracking. But... Um, he did an amazing piece of work called 7,000 Oaks. Uh, didn't complete the project before he died, planting of 7,000 trees. Um, we collected acorns um, from a number of the trees and we've been growing. We have about 200 surviving saplings. And for the last few years, we've exhibited them in some high-profile galleries and venues. We've also done some high-profile events, for example, the Nobel Laureate Symposium. Um, and we're trying at the moment to get a major project in Paris happening to coincide with COP21, um, which is based around tree planting, but it's also about planting, it's about planting ideas uh, very multidisciplinary kind of visions for now, visions for the future, which will place, I suppose, biodiversity and ecological, sort of an ecological and a social biodiversity into a framework which is mutually beneficial and, you know, and will, uh, and will allow um, evolution uh, that isn't going to um, put us, you know, into a <laughs> into boiling water really. We got involved with a, a project Cape Farewell in 2003 that was uh, taking artists, musicians, writers and scientists on a very small sailing schooner up into the high arctic and experiencing, uh, the, well, seeing the, the changes that are taking place there and we were lucky enough to be involved over, over a number of years. I think the last trip we did was 2007 but in that time, actually, really physically seeing the glaciers retreating, and but also having scientists on hand and oceanographers and people to speak with, I think that stimulated a, a number of pieces of work. There's the ice um, lens we did, um, didn't we? Yeah, there's a big lens that we carved out of uh, a section of uh, glacial ice. The sort of the idea was to actually get it to focus the sunlight and to melt or burn things, which 
Unfortunately, the warmest it got, I think that time was minus 27 <laughs> and the crystal, the, the ice just kept on sort of crazing over and, and frosting and cracking. So we never really got it to focus the light, but it acted as this sort of sun capture mm. anyway. Uh, there was another piece that we did stranded where we got managed to access the, the skeleton of a, or a stranded whale that was washed up in Skegness through the Natural History Museum and we fenced it on the beach, took the bones out and and crystallized the whole piece. But the idea was in the way, I think, talking with the oceanographers about the changes in the, the chemical balance within the oceans that are directly affecting corals, but also the plankton that the whale lived from. So, so it was a piece that sort of speaks mm. directly with that. The polar bear diamond was another. Yeah, another piece as well, mm. yeah. We sometimes say that, you know, there's an orchestration of responses that we have. It's very much grown out of our body of work. You know, we haven't, you know, and it, it's very embedded in the way that we think um, about processes, um, natural, process, uh, pro natural processes of growth and inorganic processes of growth, such as crystals. I think there's a significant shift where... I think maybe some of the earlier work we were doing in some ways was, um, I'm trying to find the words here. I think now, particularly with the piece of work that we're trying to happen and make work in Paris, that's drawing some really important science that's been done in this country to show how critically important it is to plant more trees, have green roofs, have more parks in our urban and city spaces to counteract uh, the effects of the uh, heat island effect and warming temperatures and flooding and, um, you know, storms. So I think now we're trying to get to a point where we're actually trying to physically engage with people, um, I suppose, in a more of um, an aesthetic and activist role. You've had some, as I understand, some engagement with, with transition in Dorking. You were involved yeah. with transition there? We became involved at quite an early stage, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. There had been, there were a few, there were a few people, oh, that's it. That was it. There are a few people who were setting it up. Um, a couple of people had gone off and they had done the transition um, course. Mm -hmm. And we knew uh, Lucy and we said, look, why don't we bring Lucy Neal? You know, she's tooting. We'll invite her here to Dorking. Whoever can come along, come along. And we can hear her talk because we knew that she had been very active with tooting and sort of got it, you know, a little bit more, you know, a little bit more feathers on the old, on the old fledgling. And we thought this might help. So Lucy came down and, you know, it was great, very animated and, you know, very, very enthusiastic and very encouraging. Um, so that was a kind of an early, yeah, that was kind of an early input. And then we, we kind of move in and out as we can really, don't we? And kind of input on different levels. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, We'd been fighting off three or four different supermarkets that had been circulating around Dorking and trying to come into town or out of town stores and things. Well, and three of them have come. I mean, yeah, but they shifted. But I think, I mean, what you got involved with, Heather, was more the food float that was an initiative that, although it's linked to Transition Town, it was sort of well, it came was actually out of pre, It was pre-transition yeah, in a way. Yeah, but it was one of them. I mean, it was pre-transition, but we sort of tied, what it was is that we were part of a campaign group to stop a large supermarket development right in the centre of town. Um, and eventually, after a lot of sustained pressure and, you know, I mean, it wasn't just us. There were also issues to do with highways and access and stuff. But it, it, it didn't happen in the first format. It didn't happen. It was first meant to be. They went back to the drawing board. And in the meanwhile, we there were a number of people and we said, look, if we're not being a campaign group saying no, could we be a different kind of group? 
presenting something that we do want, which is access to local food on the high street. And out of that was born Food Float, which is a stall that now operates on a Friday and Saturday, and it's run by volunteers. We have two... We have two people who manage it because it is a lot of business involved in keeping it up and keeping it keeping it managed, as you can imagine. Um, but it's incredibly successful and and is really really popular. And and it's there come wind, mm. snow, rain, yeah. storms. It's just selling local, yeah, local produce. Local and, produce, um, yeah. yeah. And now they're doing a box. They do a box scheme as well, a vegetable scheme. And there's um, they've started to supply local restaurants as well. It's, yeah, you know, it's done really, really well. Yeah. So there were four women. I was one of them, but completely ably supported by Dan, who'd be holding the babies. <laughs> I'd run off, you know, to kind of try and or, do uh, on putting up the tables. <laughs> on putting up the tables. And what's your sense of 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 the role that that the arts can play in transition? Why does transition need the arts? And then extension from that, why does the arts need transition? I think art, I think we all need art in our lives, whether or not it's it's you know in the broader sense, music, writing, paintings, you know, sculptures. However, you know, beautiful aesthetic designs. I think creativity should be almost welded into our beings. And whether or not one is an engineer or a physicist, I think often the people I find most exciting from very different disciplines, lawyers, have such a create an embedded creative approach, which is also quite critical. I mean, when I say critical, there's a criticality there, um, which is good. Um, and communication skills are really important. And I think it's about trying to use imagination, use vision, use wit, use, ent- use, use insight, use, I don't know, just kind of use you know, dreams in a way to, 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 to navigate our way through these various, these various crises that we find ourselves in. I think art has been, you know, both a guardian and a guide and, and both an, an absolute independent presence that has shaped and inspired through, my God, you know, going back to cave paintings, really. And I just think that transition is, yes, it's about getting ourselves off this um, fossil fuel um, dependence, which is, you know, heavily promoted by businesses and corporations who we know historically have done some pretty rotten stuff to really stop it advancing as it should do. But it's also about how we teach, how we share knowledge, what, what's important in our world, what we deserve, what we should be protecting, what we should be embracing and, and um, celebrating as well. 